Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, the podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. We're here with our special guest, uh, Susan Metis, who is halfway around the world at present. Uh, Susan, we're very grateful for you joining us at the end of your workday. Ho- hopefully, we're not interrupting your dinner hour. Uh, but uh, she has written a fascinating new book, which we wanted our listeners to be aware of, called The Loneliness Epidemic, subtitled Why So Many of Us Feel Alone and How Leaders Can Respond. It's a very timely book, especially coming out of a two-year pandemic uh, where people were locked down for uh, a long period of time. Uh, Susan is coming to us from her home in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania where she lives with her husband, who is on a diplomatic military posting. She is an associate editor at Christianity Today. Uh, She has done research on a wide variety of topics. I think it's fair to say, Susan, that you're a professional researcher. Uh, And so, first of all, welcome. Really glad to have you with us. Thanks for coming on and talking to us about your book. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so tell us what first got you interested in this particular topic. Like I mentioned, you have... Been, you've been involved in research on a wide variety of topics, uh, but what captured your attention on this subject of loneliness? Well, I was working with Barna Group looking at some of the results that we were getting back um, from interviews and surveys, and it just seemed to me that loneliness was playing a really big role in people's lives. And I said, hey, let's look a little deeper into this. Let's see if we can get some more information. And that led to the book and this collaboration on the, the surveys that make up the backbone of the book about what Americans are experiencing with their loneliness. Susan, the moment I saw the title, The Loneliest Epidemic, it rung true to me because I work with young people and also have studied this, not as much as you have, but I know some people are thinking, wait a minute, how can this be an epidemic when we have so much connecting technology today? How could people be so lonely? I think that's a, a really good question. And and honestly, it's an important one because people keep trying to solve loneliness with technology. Nothing against technology, but the Loneliness signals a lack in quality in our relationships or a lack of a relationship that's important to us or that we're missing a particular person. And technology is not great at solving those problems. It's it's not great at helping us meet face to face with nothing in between us. Um, although, you know, there are some things about that that can get better. Um, the way that we use it right now is is usually for fairly low quality Um, communication. And it doesn't give us that emotional intimacy or the trust or the other things that really help us create the relationships that fight against loneliness. So Susan, tell us a little bit uh, your assessment of the impact of the pandemic on loneliness in your research. So this is really interesting. And and I want to preface this by saying that um, our surveys were not the only ones that turned up this result. So we gave out the same questions right before the pandemic really became a big deal in the U.S. So COVID-19 existed, but it wasn't uh, making headlines in the U.S. at that point. And then after most adults had started socially distancing, so people who could be were at home rather than at work. And uh, what we found was almost no change at all. 
And that's actually been a result that a lot of other researchers have found. It's a huge surprise in many ways because it goes against what we think of. I This is a guess uh, that there is some resilience that we didn't realize we had. And then also when we are home with our with our households, with our families, that we find we like them and it's good to be around them. One study found that teenagers in particular, they were still spending a lot of time on social media, but they were also spending more time with their parents and their siblings than before. And um, so none of that undermines the fact that this is a distressing time, that a lot of people are um, struggling through with life in general, struggling with bereavement, struggling with all sorts of things. But loneliness just doesn't seem to have been one of the big problems that kicked in early on in the pandemic. Now, I, I think a lot of us who study this still expect um, an uptick and certainly for the, the upward trend in loneliness to continue. But it just didn't have that spike that we, a lot of us at least, expected initially. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected that either with, with the data coming out. Now, you make a, what seems like a counterintuitive point at first that there's an upside to occasional loneliness. Tell us what you mean by occasional loneliness and why there would be an upside to it. Yeah, loneliness is really, it's a gauge. And what it tells us is pay attention to your relationships. There's something wrong with your relationships. And so that that attention that, that we pay, hopefully in response to loneliness, of going deeper with people that we already know, of initiating new relationships, those are good things. Uh, loneliness also gives you know urgency to some things that need urgency. We need to feel a need to connect with other people. If we didn't, um, then we just we wouldn't be people. <laughs> it's part of our humanity to need other people and to miss them when they're not around. So I, I think we we can't regret that when things go wrong with our social lives, we feel lonely. Um, I will say that um, it also helps us to, I think, to, to turn inward in some ways. That's not always bad, but to think about, is my life on the track that I want it to be on? Are my relationships in the place that they should be? And um, hopefully that is a constructive way to respond. And hopefully a lot of people are, are taking that route. Now, there are destructive ways to respond to loneliness, of course. And uh, we're hoping that, that people do resist those. And, and those include um, trying to get attention in ways that are self-destructive or destructive of others. Um, sometimes you see people taking revenge on social media when they themselves feel rejected. Um, you also might find that people try to substitute uh, something else for quality relationships. So they might uh, do things that are inherently not as satisfying um, all by themselves, but that absorb their attention for a long time. Some, you know, sometimes you you need a break, and that's fine. But I think the response of feeling pain and and trying to numb it with something that doesn't address the problem, um, that can be at work in a lot of Americans' lives. So that sort of hey, things aren't right with the world. Hey, things aren't right with you or your relationships. That call to attention, I think, can be a real help to us as we go through life. The 
problems begin, like I said, when we respond badly to that or when we have a chronic form of loneliness, when we always feel lonely and when it really um, is something that is just part of our day in and out all the time. That kind of loneliness is where you see uh, big health problems, um, a, a bad cycle that involves anxiety and depression as well as loneliness. That sort of uh, loneliness is not something I'd ever prescribe to somebody uh, because it's just very destructive of our health, of our ability to, to go out and, and try to carry on good relationships as well as our society at large. So Susan, how, you know, I, I, mean, I think, you know, Sean and I are quite different personalities. I mean, he's much more extroverted than I am, and I'm, I'm quite, a, quite a bit more of an introvert. Uh, and so my guess is that we might experience the phenomena of loneliness a little differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, for, for myself, I put a, put a very high value on solitude. That's what refreshes me. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes I, you know I've I've been I've been known to comment to people that all you know all this getting back together again after the pandemic is a little bit overrated. <laughs> um, so how how would how would you distinguish between loneliness and solitude? Because I think I suspect some of our listeners might get those two categories confused. I I like that. And partly I like it because our language used to conflate the two as well. There used to not be a separate word for uh, loneliness, which these days the definition includes a a sense of distress and being by yourself. So now we have different words to describe those things. And it's helpful because we don't all feel distress when we're on our own. In fact, all of us do need to be on our on our own sometimes. Introverts and extroverts need that solitude. And introverts and extroverts need company and buddies and conversation. It's just the proportions that we need it in are different. But uh, one of the things that I found in, in the research that really was surprising is that people who feel they lack privacy, so people who feel they don't have the solitude or that their lives are intruded on, they also feel lonelier. And I had expected the opposite. I had thought that there would be a trade-off, that you, you know, you you experience this kind of unpleasant intrusion, but then you're not as lonely. No, that's not the case. Americans say that when they feel intruded on, they also feel lonelier. I think what this signifies is that we're not getting high enough quality solitude or high enough quality time with loved ones. Susan, I'm really curious what the data shows about singles uh, in comparison with married adults, because just a couple days ago, I was speaking with a pastor friend of mine who's single, and he described in his experience that actually some of the loneliest people he spoke with were married couples, and he had reasons for why he thought that was the case. Of course, that's his experience in the UK. What does the data show if we look at single adults compared to married adults? In the U.S., it's really clear single people are lonelier than married people. That doesn't mean that each individual single person is lonelier than each individual married person. But really, when you look at the pattern, marriage protects against loneliness to a huge extent. So if you look at single and married people, 
Um, 38% of single people said that they hadn't been lonely at all in the previous week. So um, a minority, um, but 56% of married people said they hadn't felt lonely at all in the previous week. That's a big difference in who's experiencing loneliness. And it, it goes down the line with um, how frequently they do experience loneliness when they experience it, as well as how painful it is. So um, we asked people, you know, how painful is your loneliness on a scale from unbearable to barely noticeable? And single people were much more likely to put the pain of their singleness in those higher levels. Mm. Uh, so we really, there's there's no reason to to discourage people from marriage by saying that it's not going to help them with loneliness. But here's the thing. Um, when you look at low quality marriages, then you have a lot of loneliness. And most likely it's two people who are lonely, not one. And those people um, hopefully will go to a pastor for some help. So you you do get people in marriages who feel very uh, misunderstood, undervalued, unable to connect. And those people are experiencing loneliness. You also get single people who are not feeling a, a need to be married, that who are feeling that their lives and their relationships are very satisfying. Um, so there's a real difference here, but on average, people would like to be married. And when they do get married, it, they find that it helps them not to feel lonely. Let me, Susan, let me tackle another area that might, might be a, a myth about loneliness. And I'll, I'm a little surprised that Sean hasn't gone there already on my behalf since I'm, <laughs> since I'm a little, just a tad <laughs> older than he is. Uh, but, uh, our, our, I mean, the, the, uh, intuitively, we think that you know people who are older tend to be more lonely. But what does your data show about that? Just the opposite. In America, the the loneliest adults are the youngest adults, and the older you get, the less likely you are to be lonely. It surprises a lot of people, and that is not a universal pattern. When you go around the world, there are countries where the oldest people are the loneliest. But it's not in our country, and that's a really clear pattern. It's not even close. So um, I think that a lot of people imagine that when they're older, when they're retired, that they'll be bored, or that their lives won't be as as you know glamorous as they want them to be. But those aren't actually things, even if they were true, that affect loneliness all that much. So. Uh, one of the things that I looked at when I saw this pattern was what's going on in young adults' lives that's making them feel so lonely. And the, the short answer is instability. They are not in households uh, that are stable. So they're, they tend to either be going or coming um, into a household, um, either going from uh, the household they grew up in, their family of origin, um, into a household that they uh, are on their own in or with roommates or sometimes with a significant other. And those significant others, by the way, that, that tends not to affect loneliness as much as marriage does. It's just not as, um, it just doesn't have as big an effect on the way that you feel about your life and your relationships. Um, so 
you see these older adults um, have, you know, established lives, established patterns, long friendships, and those things help with loneliness. But some of the habits that have changed over time are working against young adults to the kind of surprising turn of events. Young adults stopped hanging out with their friends as much in recent generations, stopped doing things like driving around in cars as much and going to parties and all the things that young people are portrayed as doing in, in the movies, they're not doing those things as much anymore. And that seems to be affecting the way that they make friends and conduct their friendships. Uh, those things might stay with them their whole lives. So it might be an age thing. It might be a generational thing. It looks to me mm. like it's a little bit of both. Susan, I'm really curious what your your dad and your insights suggest about the connection between loneliness and social media, because there's a lot of debate. Jean Twenge, for example, in her research in iGen argues that in 2012, there's a hockey stick increase in depression, which I realize is different than loneliness, but there's a connection there. And she ties it to smartphones. And of course, that's linked with social media. Is there a correlation? Is there causation? What's your insights and what does the data suggest about that? Well, I think one thing that is clear is that social media has not been great for people's mental health. Hmm. Um, there are upsides. There are ways of using it that can be helpful or at least not harmful. But when it comes to loneliness, the picture is pretty blurry. Uh, we can't tell exactly how social media has affected loneliness. One of the things that I can say, and this is this is from Twenge's research and other people who've been studying this um, using different tools and different uh, sorts of research than I used, um, that if you want to use social media in a way that's uh, helpful rather than hurtful, then it will be something that you use to supplement real life relationships, that it will be a way of carrying on and sharing with people that you know and care about in person. And it will be something that you don't spend you don't, you don't shift your social life onto social media. You conduct a social life in real, in real life, and then you add on to that social media. So I think um, that is the, the challenge to us all, not just young people, is to make sure that we are you know, paying attention when we need to pay attention, that we aren't always on our phones. And mostly that we just are really careful not to substitute rather than supplement our interactions with social media. Susan, I, I wanted to explore one of your solutions that you bring out, which I admit is really counterintuitive. You suggest that one of the ways as people get older to counter loneliness is to invest more in friendships than in family. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm assuming I read that correctly. But I, you know, I know in in my my own family, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time with the the parents of the kids that are, kids that our our own kids played sports with. But we discovered that once they once the kids quit playing sports with these folks, th these parents dropped out of our lives almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And I we've seen this in our you know in our friends some of our friends who as they have grandkids their kids are you know out of the house and grown but have but have grandkids they invest in their grandkids and often they order their lives and where they live around them as opposed to friendships outside of the family so this 
This strikes me as a kind of a counterintuitive solution. Why, why is this investment in friendships more so than family uh, an important part of the solution that you see? Yeah, it is. It's both counterintuitive and countercultural. And the reason that I highlighted it is not because we get the most bang out of the buck uh, or let me see. Did I say that right? That's right. Not, not because it's it's the most uh, like the biggest solution that we can get by by enhancing friendships, but because it's an important thing that we are we're letting it drop. So it's a little bit like you know not putting oil in your car. You're going to have problems down the road if you ignore the role of friendship in your life. So friendship is one of the kinds of relationships that people need in general and that we need to not feel lonely. And Americans are getting worse at friendship and particularly men are getting worse at friendship. Hmm. We have fewer close friends than we used to and we interact with them less than we used to. Um, We have fewer people that we talk about with important matters than we used to. We might be Googling those things and getting you know, better or worse information. I don't know, but we aren't interacting with people in the same way, uh, people outside of our families in the same way. And we're putting increasing pressure on our, our marriages, our families of origin to supply all of our social needs. Now, I think there, there's some upsides to that. Uh, family is wonderful. Marriage is wonderful for most people. Those are you know, really life-giving uh, relationships. But the, lon- the least lonely people that we saw were people who had a variety of close relationships, people in different roles. So you want to maintain close relationships with your spouse, of course, with your parents, but also siblings, cousins, friends, and neighbors, I think is a big one that we're leaving out these days. So that idea about friendships and neighbors doesn't just, it's just not one of my ideas. It actually comes out of a a multi-generational study um, called a Framingham Heart Study, which is a a study about heart health. But they asked questions about loneliness and they asked questions about close contacts who would be able to know where you were in a couple of years. And what they found over a, a very long period of time was that the people who got lonelier, uh, that it was kind of contagious, uh, that loneliness uh, started and spread uh, in certain ways in a community, that it spread in uh, close, like physically close relationships, so between neighbors and between friends who live close to each other. Um, and it also found that those physically close, like close to your location, close relationships, could have more influence on your loneliness or unloneliness than the people in your family who weren't nearby. So for a lot of us, family isn't close. For, for some of us, it is. But we need to invest in those relationships that are near to us and in those friendships that are near to us. Because what the data shows pretty clearly is that uh, all kinds of relationships help with loneliness. And the people who are most protected, have a a really thick network of different kinds of relationships uh, with friends, with neighbors, as well as with family. Susan, a couple of questions here before before we wrap up. 
Uh, you had a really insightful part, in my view, on uh, how people managing their expectations, their relational expectations, is really important in overcoming loneliness. What did you mean by that? So when I define loneliness as this gap in what we hope for and what we have in our relationship, there's kind of a push-pull on that. There's the the relationships that are available to us. Um, you know, maybe that maybe we've lost someone, maybe they moved away. Those things are external. But there's also the disappointment because our expectations can't be met by that person. And uh, our loneliness depends a lot on what we expect out of our relationships and whether those relationships can bear those expectations. So when you expect nothing of a relationship, you're probably not going to be less lonely because of it. That's the that's too low a bar. But when you expect constant communication or for this person to be texting you more than they're texting, you know, person B, or you want to be in first place instead of in second place in your mother's heart, um, then you start running into these problems where you feel lonely because not because the relationship is low quality, but because you are not uh, able to accept the relationship for what it could be. And we do see um, some cases where people just have uh, expectations of, of the speed and frequency of communication that are just not uh, good for the person on the other end. What we also see is people who have an interaction and feel bad about it and then go on to kind of uh, back away from the whole relationship because they have this interaction that they see in a negative light. So they might see their part in a negative light. They might say, oh, I was so awkward. That person can never like me. Or they might see the other person as having snubbed them or having, um, you know, just not been warm or enthusiastic enough. That kind of expectation also can be something that makes us lonely. And the remarkable thing is we're often wrong. <laughs> we're really good at having ourselves in the spotlight, uh, you know, telling the story where we're the main character, not only in our own lives, but in other people's lives and reminding ourselves that we're probably not the main character, that people who are delaying communication might have something else going on. Uh, might just be busy. They might be sick. There are so many reasons that they might not be responding to us in the way or the speed that we want them to. I think it's really important to question our negative perception of our interactions. When we start going down that road of, of backing away from relationships because we feel bad about how they seem to us, uh, we need to ask ourselves, could it be something else? Could it be okay? Is this a relationship that I want to pursue anyway? And that actually has been one of the few organized interventions against loneliness that's shown an effect. Um, so they compared a lot of things like teaching people social skills and having parties for people. But this one really came out ahead. Um, and that is teaching people to question their negative perceptions. And uh, so I would encourage everyone to you know, when you feel bad about a relationship, when you think somebody hasn't responded to you for too long, when you sent them a Christmas card and they didn't send you a Christmas card, uh, 
all of those things, uh, we can allow them to detract from our relationship. But I would encourage people not to let that happen, at least not in our parts. Um, if the relationship is is uh, drifting apart for other reasons, that happens too. I mean, I'm a military spouse, right? So I'm used to seeing people and then not seeing them for a really long time. But we can also have a little more resilience against awkwardness and um, communication tr- problems than we do. Now that, that, that's really helpful, really insightful advice on that. One, one final question, Susan. What, what would you say is the impact of a uh, the church or, or someone's vibrant Christian faith on the phenomena of loneliness in their lives? Not exactly what I had expected. So uh, we see a lot of health and um, life satisfaction effects from going to church. Loneliness wasn't that different for churchgoers. And um, one of the things that we did see was that churchgoers did experience relative to other people, a, a bit of a boost during the pandemic. Now, what I think that means is that a lot of different things are going on. Some people are coming to church lonely and becoming less lonely. Some people are becoming lonely and leaving church. Um, some people are becoming lonely within the church. Some people are staying lonely within the church. Uh, but a lot of the things that we do are good for us and we shouldn't stop them. Good for loneliness in particular. Uh, And those things include um, caring for each other in particular ways, like when someone is grieving or has a new child, to make sure that we um, protect their their time and bring them food. Those things are things we shouldn't drop. I actually think we should expand that kind of caretaking. We should continue singing together when we can. Singing actually makes us feel unity and, and kind of a warm glow and it's, it's one of the things that Christians do together that's actually really great for us. Uh, we should also continue to meet new people and to welcome new people. And I would add that um, as much as we can continue to form friendships in churches, we should encourage each other to do so. Wow. This is, Susan, this has been so insightful. Uh, I want to commend your book to our listeners, The Loneliness Epidemic. Subtitle, Why So Many of Us Feel Alone and How Leaders Can Respond. Uh, Susan Metis has been our guest. Uh, thank you again, Susan, for coming to us from uh, halfway around the world uh, in Tanzania. Uh, it's been a delight to talk to you, and we look forward to seeing more of your work and more of your research in the future. So really appreciate this time, and uh, I trust that for our listeners this, this has been helpful and insightful in dealing with loneliness in your own life and in the lives of people you care about. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including the Institute for Spiritual Formation. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation with our guest, Susan Metis, Give us a rating on your podcast app and please feel free to share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening and remember, think biblically about everything.